Hello and welcome to episode four of the Choose Film podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Gary. And today we are joined by the lovely Lindsay Everts. Thank you so much for joining us, Lindsay. It's my absolute pleasure. Um, so Lindsay has chosen a film to fit in with our first features theme. And we are so excited to be talking about the favourite today. Um, so yeah, before we get into it, Lindsay, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what it, it is that you do? Yes, I'd love to. Um, uh, to reiterate, thank you so much for inviting me. This is just such a lovely, lovely, fun thing to talk about our favourite topic in the whole world. Um, and yeah, I would love to um, contribute to your your new project. So I'm very touched. Um, so my name is Lindsay and uh, I try to avoid this sometimes, but it really is the biggest influence in my life is that I grew up with a dad who was a really, really successful uh, Hollywood film producer. And I actually grew up in England, despite my uh, mixed mid-Atlantic accent. I grew up in England and went to American school. He was Canadian. But I kind of grew up in the business without being in the business. And I also, uh, my dad was somebody who was full of integrity and an honest guy, passionate guy, never went to film school. And he had this amazing career in Hollywood over a 40-year period. So that influenced me a huge amount. And I tried to fight off for a long time wanting to be in the film business. My brother's also a filmmaker. And he's, you know, he's worked on films that have been Oscar nominated, like my dad. And there was a lot of pressure uh, kind of growing up to not be able to even start in that business because my dad was one of the best in the world. 67 Oscar nominations and 40, you know, 37 uh, Oscars and four of them were best film. I mean, he had a massive, massive career. And um, so when, when he and then uh, my mom passed away uh, a few years ago, I, I knew that this is just something that I had always really loved and finally sort of had the freedom to go and make my own way in it. And so I moved to LA and I studied film production and I had, I had worked in film festivals and we were always trying to get back to it. But this other um, career path had always seemed to suck me back. And But when I finally got to L.A. and because my parents were no longer around, in a weird way, it gave me the freedom to finally go for this thing that always made my heart sing. And this is why I just love talking about movies that I love, because it, it there, there's no explanation for it. It just it makes me feel connected to other human beings and learning about different parts of the world. And so um, that's kind of where I came from. And now my favorite thing is to consult with filmmakers on how to start their careers because I've worked at places like Sundance and traveled the world and had this extraordinary experience being the kid of my dad. I'm able to dispel a lot of myths and really focus in on things they don't teach you in film school, like how to really get good feedback uh, what the business is really about, how to um, how to sniff out a bad deal or how to know when somebody's not really telling you the truth about a certain situation in filmmaking or how to protect your your artistic integrity, that kind of stuff. So I absolutely love helping artists um, dial down onto what the fastest and best way forward is. Um, 
And that's actually what brings me so much respect to Gary because he is making films and he's creating his own film festival and he knows how to talk to other filmmakers and he's not completely obsessed with himself and always talking about what his projects are. In fact, the reverse, I'm always going, Gary, you know, just, you know, I'd love to see your film or tell me what you're working on. And it's, to me, it's the mark of a true artist is when somebody has got to do it. You have to do it. Otherwise you can't sleep at night. And I love being able to encourage people kind of, you know, don't take a mortgage out on the house. Do not make a hundred thousand dollar for a short film, make a short film, make sure it's under 10 minutes, that kind of stuff. And I'm just completely obsessed with emerging filmmakers and having, helping them get to where they need to go. My gosh, what a journey. I love it. And I also love that you are supporting other people in the industry. And I think that's, you know, it's a big part of a lot of people think this is such a scary competitive industry, but there are people like you supporting emerging filmmakers. And that is just so nice to hear. And I think that's a side of the industry that we don't hear about as often. And it's so nice that it's there. Yeah. Um, so why did you choose the favorite tell us a bit about that I was really annoyed by it when I started watching it I I don't want to call myself a movie snob because I'm not at all but I'm a bit of a brat and we have a, a bunch of friends who are all filmmakers and we had one who brought a screener one Christmas a few years ago and we all sat in the room and there was probably about six of us in there this is even before I started studying film and it, the angles were really strange and the sound is kind of funny and the, the, the dialogue is a bit mismatched with what I'm used to for the time period and the wide angle shots and the low angle. I mean, it just the whole thing just put me off kilter. And I have a huge respect for filmmaking and filmmaking grammar and how things are done. And it kind of broke a bunch of rules. And about half an hour in, I stopped thinking about the filmmaking and was so immersed in this world that I, I it, the, the cinematography takes over, the acting takes over, the all the really great bits that you need to make a film phenomenal. And then the things that used to bother me were just, I realized what an absolute pioneer he is in creating tone and making your audience uncomfortable because he's so confident. He kind of, he says to the audience, just, just sit and relax a bit. I've, I've got you. And you just have to sit back and, and let me tell you the story the way I want to tell it to you. And you come out of there just going, Oh my God, what have I just seen? It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it's melding of genres and kind of um, qualities and, it just was so brave. He's so confident. His actors are this amazing amalgamation. Those three women, I mean, talk about chemistry. It is just such a joy. There's something you can't explain when few things like that characteristics come together and you're in it and the angles don't matter. And all of a sudden they become a really, really important part of what you love about the film. I just love that journey. As I was watching it, I was like, this is a comedy and I am finding it funny, but it's so weird that I'm not laughing and I don't know how to feel. And it's really like this. It's the weirdest period drama I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Um, so, Lindsay, if you were to rate this film out of 10, what would you give it? It's one of my favorite films of all time. So 10 on 10 for me. Absolutely. No question. Hits all my buttons. <laughs> yeah, I would go for an 8 out of 10. Now, I'm going to be controversial here. So it was my first time watching it as well. And I got caught up in the style. And after I read through my notes, I thought I've been a little bit harsh here. But I'm going to say what I said and we can see how it goes. I gave it a six out of 10. When I did read back my notes, I was like, okay, I have not appreciated the filmmaking in this, but there's so much that I loved about it. And when I was reading my notes, I was like, okay, I did love a lot. So why have I given it a six out of 10? But that was just what came to me the second after I watched it, so. I, I find that fascinating because the whole thing makes me so uncomfortable. Mm. His, the way that he does things and the dialogue is strange. And like I said before, like it just puts me completely off kilter that I don't know if I'm uncomfortable because of the filmmaking or because I'm supposed to feel uncomfortable. He's doing that to test you and wake you up and make you pay attention and tell you something in a new way. And there's so much more information in there that you're kind of trying to process the whole thing at the same time as well. Yeah. And then I was able to see... Uh, he, that was the first one I'd seen of his, and then I saw some uh, some other ones, and realized that he's he's just he's just my boy. I mean, he is just saying things in a way that I really really love to hear. And I've funny enough, I've kind of fallen out of love with other hotels, like um, I just don't like that word hotel. Um, I've fallen out of love with people like Wes Anderson. I love his earlier stuff. And then later on, I'm just going, yeah, but I've seen this. I, I know you're just relying on this thing that you really, really like to do. And it's the pens and it's the, I mean, everything that's Wes Anderson. I think he's absolutely genius. What I'm saying is I just can't, I'm not, I can't get into it anymore because I'm so conscious and aware. Yeah, you're looking and, for something slightly more now. You're looking for him to take another step. Yeah, and Yorgos, he manages to just have his way of doing things, which is what producers are looking for these days, I mean, the big time, are looking for why you and why now? Why do you have to tell this specific story and why does it have to be told in 2020? So it's really important as, uh, I can't help go into kind of consulting mode here because I just love, you know, filmmakers, but it's really important that directors realize that whereas before they, you know, in a few years ago, they might have just been a gun for hire, like, let me just show I can, I can direct commercials. Very important as well. But really, it's authentic voice that absolutely has to come out. And that takes quite a few years to develop. And Gary, you've know, you know, because you've made so many films now, it, every film, you, you learn so much about yourself. You learn so much about what you want to say, how you want to say it. And on top of it, you learn how to manage making a film, which is, I think, probably 60% of the whole process. And what people don't realize is that you can't get that from any other experience other than making it. But Yorgos comes along, and every single one of his films that I've seen, I think I've seen four of them now, they're just brilliant, and they're him and it's perfect for right now. 
and he's he's a white male and all these white males are saying oh there's no room for they're crying about there's no work for white males anymore it's just simply not true and i, I think it's a bit of an excuse um because you have people like him just killing it it's a completely unique um and yeah i'm excited to dive into this but before we do for our listeners who maybe haven't seen the favorite a little synopsis is um in early 18th century england a frail queen anne occupies the throne and her close friend lady sarah governs the country in her state when a new servant abigail arrives her charm endears her to sarah there is a lot of um battles going on in this um so yeah let's get started the queen is an extraordinary person they're all staring weren't they i can tell even if i can't see and i heard the word fat fat and ugly no one but me would dare and i did not she's been stalked by tragedy everyone leaves me and dies I apologize for my appearance. I hoped I might be employed here by you as something. A monster for the children to play with, perhaps. So yeah, we're gonna go around, we're gonna say our first points for the film, and we're gonna go from there. We're gonna see where it goes. Yeah, Gary, sure. do you wanna kick us off? Uh, yeah, sure. My first uh, positive point's a bit of a weird one, and I don't really want to get into politics, because I don't really know too much about politics. <laughs> but it just kind of made me worry about the people in charge, like, and what they're actually up to behind closed doors. Like, you've got them uh, racing their ducks and racing lobsters and just this weird thing. And they just seem so withdrawn from society in general. I mean, I don't know. What do you feel about that? Yeah, like their way of having fun is throwing fruit at the naked guy and stuff. <laughs> yeah, and that that one scene alone i was watching this scene and i was like what is this about they're all crying with laughter as they're throwing the fruit and oranges and i was just like what the hell is going on here what is the point in this scene and i i do think it is to show that these people are so far removed from society and i think that's one of the reasons as well that the film never really leaves the location of the palace yeah i mean i completely agree with you you know totally out of touch and i don't think it's I I don't want to assume that anything's that different now. Politically speaking, there's a really, really interesting thing happening in the U.S. right now. And the lies coming out, I, oh, I've always said this, but politicians have been the same types of people since the beginning of government. Why would I assume it's any different now on the grand scheme? And I just watched the press... Uh, press meeting of for Donald Trump's doctors and he's in the hospital and all that stuff. And I just went, I have the overwhelming feeling I'm being completely lied to. And that's why the, the films like the favorite are completely timeless and why they still appear, appeal so deeply. And the messages that they have in there are just messages about humanity, not necessarily about, about time. But I love how he, mashes together so many themes. I mean, it is about classist uh, structures and things like that, but it's also the chemistry between these these three women. I just love, I would have loved to hear how he, or how they pitched this movie. Because you cannot picture it because it's never been done before. 
one of the other scenes that really made me think about that as well was where Lady Sarah says, we're at war. And Queen Anne says, we won. And Lady Sarah says, the war is not over. And the Queen replies with, oh, I did not know that. That's like now to me. <laughs> like, and Queen Anne at that time was supposed to be the most powerful woman in the world. And she's basically like a crazy cat lady, only instead of cats, it's rabbits. And I find it really entertaining and, yeah, just baffling. Yeah. Yeah, it seems a lot of the time in the film, she's not so much in control. Like, she's a figure of the person in control. But really, there's so much other influence. And I think how the government is portrayed in such, like, a farcical way it does kind of make it feel like it's just a big just a big game to them. Yeah, all the kind of inside things that are happening that we never know about, that we don't have access to. And that's the other thing is, you know, especially when making documentary films or, or anything, when you're writing about anything, it's what do you have access to is the thing that you're going to be an expert on. I mean, one of my, you know, I had a practical Sophie's Choice situation, not choosing Lynn, Lynn Ramsey for this. <laughs> your, your countrywoman, because I love her so much. And, you know, one of her first films was this film called Gasman, a short film, and it's really about this Scottish couple who live near tracks and have this thing happen in their family. It's absolutely phenomenal. And she knows that world so well. And that's what I loved about the beginning of The Favourite, um, is that you go in and it just is quite quiet. You just get to watch and you get to know where you are. You get to know the players without having the story kind of too rapidly um, rolled out in front of you. And you get to watch her have a weird cold bath and you uh, get to watch people being dressed and that in that time was so normal. And it's so abnormal for us, but we get to be a part of that world. Um, and Gary, I actually love that you just read out that dialogue because this is something I struggle with so much with directors and reading material is when you read dialogue and you don't know how it's going to be um, delivered. I mean, how do you know if it's good dialogue? It's very, very difficult to know because these simple lines that you just read out on paper, they would look like nothing special. And you'd think, God, this is this is bad dialogue. I mean, she's just responding in this way. But once you see it on screen, you realize that the the comedy of it and the pauses and the everything that really truly extraordinary actors add is that's the joy of it. It's there's it's so surprising in that way. So I loved I loved hearing you do the <laughs> do the dialogue in the Gary Hewitt way. Thanks. Thank you. That's the only <laughs> acting you're going to see from me. <laughs> I don't believe that. <laughs> so my first point is the kind of juxtaposition of the most grand, luxurious set and locations that you can possibly imagine with the like vulgarity of it all and the bad language constantly. It hits you right in the face. And... It, it can't be ignored. It's just so beautiful. And if you if you turned the sound off for a wee, a wee minute, it would be a d- very different film. Um, but I actually like that because it was something that I hadn't seen before and it made me listen because I couldn't predict what was coming 
next. Not that I can predict what's happening in a film, but you know, it's nice to keep the audience on their toes. And it was beautiful, but it was dark. And yeah, I did get into the characters and it took me a wee while to, to get used to it. Okay, they're gonna swear literally every second sentence. Um, this is not what I'm expecting, but actually I really liked it. It was a choice and it was done very strongly. Um, have either of you seen the TV show Deadwood? Uh, I've seen the odd episode, but I've not sat down and watched it. No, I've not watched it. It's uh, on the topic of swearing. It it really changed uh, the way that I think about swearing, funnily enough. Um, this brilliant guy, David Milch, wrote it, and it's all about uh, the 1800s in, in, I think it's North Dakota, in the, in the Wild West. And there's an enormous amount of swearing in it. And immediately it, it kind of put me off. Um, as I mentioned, my mom is British and there was zero swearing in my house. And, <laughs> and, and so it's, it's supposed to be jarring. And a lot of people use it as a, a reason not to watch the show because it's so prevalent. And when you talk to David Milch about it, there's a, there's a strategy to making it sound like that. And for them, it was because it was the Wild West, there was no police force that was going to come and um, protect you from anything or it was a very, very dangerous place. And so their language became this kind of armor and this sort of, uh, they weaponized their language so that they could tell people, don't F with me because I'm not afraid to use this language that's not not accepted. And it's the same in this. And, and my favorite bit about it was how much, in the beginning, I really, really didn't like it. And then for all these reasons, like putting me off, like I've mentioned before, it was kind of putting me off and making me uncomfortable. And then when you embrace it, you realize how much you're, you can shift. Same story. It, you really just kind of move into it. And I, <laughs> I love being manipulated like that by filmmakers. I absolutely love it. it it's, it's such a sign of, of, the filmmaker is able to just suck you right in. And we don't know what they really really sounded like because we weren't there. So for once, for it not, it sounded much more real to me. I, I also think it's a good way of showing that no matter how much you dress these characters up in the glamorous outfits and the, the glamorous palace and the glamorous bed with all these paintings, these people still are vulgar. And a way to show that is, I guess, through language. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. And even um, when Rachel Weiss's character um, says to Queen Anne, like, you look like a badger when she's got that makeup on. <laughs> and she just comes out and says it right up front. And, you know, if you thought of a scenario with a queen um, and her lady, you would never, ever think she'd just come out and insult her right like that straight to the point, she puts it across and yeah, that like you said, Lindsay, the director is brave. And yeah, you can you can relate to it a lot more than if they were using really sort of period language. I think as well, I'm sure we'll get into it, but he's obviously been bold in other scenes as well for what, what he shows <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get into that as well. But it's not a film. Like you could probably on mute show this film to your gran and she would want to go see it in the cinema thinking it's going to be like Downtown Abbey and it's really not you know (laughs) and that's where I think that's the bold choices he's deliberately thought I'm telling this story 
and it's going to be like nothing you've seen. But on the outside, it's going to be like things that you've seen 20 times from the poster or from the, you know, from the description or yeah. the genre. So I, I, I know I just can't, I've never really gotten over him as a filmmaker, his confidence. The reason that people become filmmakers is because they have to tell a visual story. And before you have your film, you have to convince people of your film that you're going to show them and things they're going to hear and the story they're going to um, learn about. I mean, this is what we're sort of doing right now is describing to an audience what a film experience feels and looks like. It's, it's kind of ludicrous in a way, isn't it? It's, it's this, when directors and writers pitch their stories, this is why it's so important. You know, Gary knows this. And I'm, as an actress, Ashley, I know you know this as well. You, you, can, you, you can only convince somebody so far of what an amazing actress you might be, um, or you could just show them 10 minutes of, of footage. And the screenwriter had to convince somebody to risk a lot of time and a lot of money. It's such a huge gamble, filmmaking. And my dad being a, a producer, he would often spend years and years and years on a film trying to get funding. He was an executive producer and a producer. So he was constantly trying to convince people to give him money and millions and millions of dollars, which boggles my mind. I just don't know how it happens, which is why I love film festivals so much because you get to see filmmakers first, a lot of times first forays into making their vision become reality. And it's so difficult. It's so difficult to do it. It's, I'm, I'm working with a filmmaker right now getting a 10-minute teaser together as a pitch for a feature documentary, and he, he spent a year on it. I mean, we've, we spent hours and hours and hours taking apart every frame of what he's trying to say and how to say it, what the music is and all that stuff. It's so difficult. So when something like The Favorite comes along that is so cohesive, so confident, and, and on top of it, the production actually went and he made it, and it went out, and people loved it. It's like a miracle. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and the fact that people coming out have seen it, and they don't know how to feel, that's him done his job. Yeah. Because you're still thinking about it. Whether you're not sure if you loved it, or you, you found it too weird, the fact that you're sitting on a train home, still processing it, he's, and he's done, his, he's done half the job. I know that this is about the favourite, but Gary, why do you... As a filmmaker yourself, why do you make them? Why do you make films? Because I, I need to tell stories. I like the fact that you can drift into these other worlds for an hour and a half. I think that's great about films as well. You can have something that might be a trauma in someone's life that then they can make it become a form of art. So this troubling thing can become something beautiful. I could probably explain it a lot better than that, but that's no, all I'm giving. No, that's very, very beautifully said. And how about you, Ashley? Why do you want to be a part of this crazy job? Oh, for me, it's it's that feeling when you're acting with another actor and you affect each other. Do you know what I mean? When you when something somebody does hits you, and you your instincts just take over. That for me is like the moment and I'm like, I know why I do this. Um, and I just, I love, I love challenging myself as well. And I'm too stubborn. Yeah, I just, I love it. I love, 
I love the like sharing of energy between actors as well. Um, yeah, just getting that effect. Beautifully said. <laughs> so yeah, it's funny the, this whole storytelling thing. I think it's I'm convinced it's that stories are written in our DNA, mm. and I think it feels a certain kind of inexplicable way when you tell a really good story, when you hear a really good story. And when you get to be a part of something, it really feels like you're part of something, not to sound super cheesy, you're part of something real special. But it does. It, 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 there's nothing like it. And I wish I didn't feel that way sometimes because <laughs> it's difficult to do for a living. No, I love it. I can't not do it. Uh, so, Lindsay, uh, what is your first point? There's so many. I would choose the camera direction because it was something that was really standing out to me in the beginning that I really, really felt I just didn't like, or I thought I didn't like it and was so uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden I realized I'd never seen a period piece shot that way. And then now at, upon the rewatching, uh, I'm cuckoo for every weird angle and lens and things like that. So I think Sophie's choice, but I would choose, um, how it was shot. On that note, I guess we really need to talk about those fisheye lens shots yeah. as well. I mean, I try to research why they were used and nothing much comes up. The only thing that came up about that was that it was weird and he liked it. <laughs> and I was like, Fair enough. <laughs> that kind of makes sense for this type of director, you know? And in a way, it also makes sense because these characters are so eccentric and weird and the film's weird in general. Why not put a weird lens on it? Because you've got this grand hallway and you want to show it off. Okay, but devil's advocate, Gary, if I had if I had $100 million to fund films and you walked into my office and you said, this is the film, oh, and by the way, I'm going to do something that you've never seen before, which is use really super wide-angle lenses on almost the entire first half of the film, I would go, go on, on your bike. Like, and like, why do you want to use it? It's because I think it's weird and I like it. I'm like, sorry, not good enough for millions and millions of my dollars. I, I, I'm sorry. But maybe it was because he did tests or maybe it was because he could, you know, using his other films, he could explain the, the tone and the weird energy that he's able to infuse into every scene by matching the phenomenal actors' incredible talent. It melds together in this very strange way that I, I only he can do it, which is why it's you can sort of tell a Yorgos film just from the, I mean, if I had to be tested on it. And the same way with Lynn Ramsey, too. I mean, you, you really get the sense that, that it's not too much, like Wes Anderson is too much for me now, but... Um, you get to enjoy the story without being it being too self-conscious. Yeah, I think I found it weird as well because it almost made it feel like CCTV shots. Yeah, which yeah. which obviously would not have existed back then. Yeah, but and it's funny that we're now discussing this and you're saying how if he walked into a producer and said this is why I'm using these lenses because it's weird, he wouldn't get the money. But now we're talking about how weird and great the cinematography is and it just shows yeah. you just you go full circle with it and still don't quite work out how and why 
Yeah, and you have to find the people that will believe you as an artist, both of you, you know, and and be people who who other you know you have this team around you that believes in you. It sounds so cheesy, but um, it it's so 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 important that bit. And I, but I do think on because we're talking about people's firsts, it's also really important not to give up as a filmmaker because somebody doesn't just believe you because you've got this kooky idea. It's like, just show me you can do it. Show me you can manage a crew. Show me you can speak nicely to people and get stuff done. Show me that you can be reasonable. Show me you can do, get your shots in, in, in the day and all, all these other things that, that come along with being a filmmaker that don't end up on the screen. And that wide angle situation, I mean, it, it, I realized later on, it really made you feel like you were in the film. And there's a lot of dark um, bits of the film, like shots in the film, which normally, you, especially because it is such a beautiful film, it really bugged me. Mm-hmm. But that I realized later on, like, oh my God, it's the time. Like, if you were there, that person's face would be dark. It just, it ends up giving the sense of realism. And because the acting is so good and the dialogue is so funny and the story is so weird, those those things carry over. And something like a dark image or somebody's face not being lit all of a sudden becomes a positive and not something that it takes away, which is incredible. Yeah, and he also uh, deliberately tried to use as much natural daylight as possible. Mm-hmm. And I guess by doing that, you're going to get all these really dark shots as well. All, these, all the really great filmmakers who basically won't be told no, I love when they just go, okay, we're going we're gonna to do this in one day or we're going to do this in one location or use those boundaries as something that can make your vision even clearer and more concentrated. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if people are waiting all the time for them to have the perfect equipment or the perfect idea or everything to be perfect, then that time is never going to come. It's about doing it and seeing where that takes you and what journey that takes you on, what opportunities it opens up. And we can tell our listeners as well that same story when we just went and did it and started instead of waiting (laughs) with this podcast we're like we're just gonna do it (laughs) well good for you then you know but but you know um gary i know you more than i know ashley because i just met her today but your your passion for storytelling and filmmaking it it really comes through because it's authentic you keep going out and keep making stories and keeping involved in other storytellers as well because you can't not do it I could watch an authentic person read a grocery shopping list. It's it's that charismatic. Authenticity is so chemical and you can feel it. It's like a great first date or, you know, a movie that you... Interstellar. I don't know why I love that film so much, but I'm, I realize that I'm in love with it. So I, have, I can't even talk about it critically because I'm like, I don't know, it's perfect. I, I love the... I felt so good watching it. But I have no ability to take it apart or interest of taking it apart. I just loved it. It's like your first hit of filmmaking heroin. Yeah. <laughs> okay, should we get back? Yeah. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I'm I know. Inspired. We could actually just sit and listen to you talk about filmmaking all day and maybe do this another time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so my second point is just on the themes of manipulation and power that's filtered throughout this film. It's a game of chess. Everyone is manipulating someone. 
to advance themselves. And it's just great to watch it unfold. The director deliberately manipulates us as well with the characters. Like when we first see Lady Sarah and she seems bossy and she treats the Queen, well, we think she's treating the Queen with no respect. Like Ashley, you said earlier, she calls her a badger. A badger, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is just a hilarious scene in general. Like Olivia Coleman's reaction to it and everything is just, just great. But then Emma Stone's character, Abigail, arrives and we see Lady Sarah treat her badly, gets her whipped, sets her up to look like a thief, and we are led to hate the Lady Sarah character. And then as the film goes on and on, we realise that Abigail is the true manipulator. There is signs, there's like breadcrumbs filtered throughout it, like after she's helped treat the Queen, and the Queen's walking past her and she coughs, just to get their attention and she says something like oh i've got the cold after going out and picking herbs to heal you and it's that's the first sign mm. of manipulation and her working away inside what's really interesting is it's a battle for power between lady sarah and abigail and they're basically battling for the respect of the queen and it's ironic because to me the queen doesn't want her power at all she just wants to be loved and wants to sit there and stroke her rabbits and and it's just this great weird obsession with power those that have it don't want it and those that don't have it want it in this film queen anne deserved better than both of them that's all i've got to say (laughs) (laughs) i love that thing i love the subtext of it and that it could be about a queen and uh her you know harem around her or it could be about a caveman in uh, you know, Nigeria, and the the themes are always going to be ones that are are universal to to humans, and the subtext of it, and different motivations, and in and in, in these different settings. I just it was so fascinating to see them all fight it out. And this is another really important thing about director, you know, young directors who want to make Marvel films and they want to go. I want to be a Marvel director, which I fully, 100% support, encourage. No one knows who can be a Marvel director or not. And if that's the thing that makes you, you know, get up in the morning, 100% behind you. But there's so much to be discovered in two actors in a room or on a stage or walking along the street. It's just so much fun to watch, isn't it? And you can't take your eyes off the screen. Mm -hmm. And it becomes not about what country we're in what year we're in and what they're wearing it becomes about these things that we've all battled like why does that person all of a sudden make me feel insecure about a relationship that i've had for years yeah you know oh love it love it yeah and i think it's how how the power constantly jumps about and it keeps you on your toes and just when you think abigail is in there with the queen then lady sarah comes back with something absolutely vile or so yeah that did definitely keep me on my toes as well. Um, My second point is actually something a little bit more playful. So I loved the constant wandering and lurking lurking in the dark. I think that made it feel, it had an element of like a teenage sleepover. Although these are women in power and the government. It was so playful at those points. And even when Uh, Abigail is watching Lady Sarah and Queen Anne's like first sort of romantic encounter that we see it was just like secrets and playfulness and hiding from people and then even 
the pushing over of characters, how she's like pushed out of the carriage at the start. And then oh, what's his name? Um, I've totally forgotten the character's name. Pushes Abigail like over when they go for a walk. It's a little bit kind of slapstick almost, but not too far slapstick. But I just love the whole playful element of it. And I actually screenshot a little quote from it because I thought this is just this sums up the sort of style of the film and having the beauty in some points and then the playful sort of vulgarity of it as well. Um, and it was, favour is a breeze that shifts direction all the time. Then in an instant, you're back sleeping with a bunch of scabrous whores wondering whose fingers in your arse. And I was like, <laughs> that is the favourite. That is the favourite. It's playful, it's beautiful and... Yeah, keeps you on your toes, as I've said so many times. Yeah, no, ditto. I love that. I guess my second point would be I, I'm still trying to sort of find the the word for it, but that it completely transported me. And the the costume design is just everything you want when you go to a a a, a film that's a period piece, and the carriages and the dresses and the the palaces and all that delicious juicy stuff because there is I think that's what bothered me so much about the wide angled lens too is because you you want so desperately to get into the detail of that stuff and he does not let you he absolutely just says nope you're going to be in the room as if you were standing there and it's dark and you don't get to look up close and we're not going to do inserts of the mink um, trim of that dress you just kind of it really is so immersive and that specifically talking about that scene Oh, she's in the carriage in the beginning. <laughs> the guy's, the guy's doing something to himself. It's a little off color, and <laughs> but you really feel like you are in the carriage with her, packed in with six or seven other people, and you can feel the movement of it. And and he's so good at that multisensorial experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. My number three? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Olivia Coleman's performance as yeah. Queen Anne or anything Olivia Coleman's in, in, in my opinion. I just think she's fantastic to watch and how she switches from anger to emotionally heartbroken to goofy. And it's all in her eyes. One particular scene that I liked, it was about... It's when they were all at the party, I think it was quite near the start, and she's in her wheelchair, and Lady Sarah is dancing with another man. I don't know if the other man is of any significance, but Olivia Coleman's in the wheelchair, and she's just watching them. And out of nowhere, she starts to cry. And it's like, it starts with the wee lip twitching, mm -hmm. and then from the lip to the eyes, and the camera just pushes in and pushes in until it's a close-up, and then she just bursts out crying. And I didn't realise why at first, but then when it goes to the next scene, and Lady Gaga, uh, Lady Gaga, I nearly said, uh, <laughs> Lady, too. yeah, Lady Sarah and the Queen embrace. Then you get, oh, she's, it's jealousy more than anything else. Just watching her dance with another man, and she can't, well, she can't do that because she's in a wheelchair, but she also can't do it because it's just not allowed. So she's hiding this and having to watch someone else basically embrace and her eyes, her woman. Yeah. And I think we need to talk about how outlandish that dancing was. That was not not um, appropriate for the period at all, but I loved it. 
there were lifts, there were everything. Weird. It was the whole thing is just weird. Yeah, that was the first one of the first points I actually wrote down whilst watching the film because I was like, "What is okay? What is going on here? Like, what am I watching?" Um, but I loved it, and that really because that dance was so outlandish, that reinforced the jealousy because everyone was watching them. There was no one that could not notice a dance like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Isn't that amazing? Olivia Coleman is one of my sort of top five actors that I love so much. And partly it's because she's got such a real face and there's so much information coming from it at all times. And she's, her face is so relaxed always. And there's still so much tension that comes out of it. And she's able to just, communicates so much with such little drama and she's got again like such a real face and I was really finding like American cinema I love it and I have a huge respect for it but there's a there's a huge concentration on how beautiful especially women are Mm -hmm. and to me she's so beautiful in her confidence and how unique she looks and how talented she is and the story she tells and every little movement on her face like she's such a in all the senses of the word such a beautiful person to watch and have all these you know emotions that make her very vulnerable so it becomes all those vulnerabilities that across all the things that I've seen her in she she just seems like such a beautiful person because of the things she chooses and the way that she communicates. And that scene is just so, it's so touching and it's so vulnerable and you're right there with her again. I love her. Well, that actually leads very well into my last point because my last point was the trance-like um, crossfade between... Anne and Abigail and the rabbits and for me it kind of it justified the whole madness of the film in that one sort of what would you call it like montage shot I'm Mm -hmm. not sure but um because that's when it hit me like Anne has lost 17 children like we were told this so so early on but I never really understood that effect on her until that very last point and I watched it over again and I just loved it and that part of the film I was like yes I get it now I see how this has affected you I see why this madness and sort of ups and downs of your life is your normal because that's what you can hold on to and anyone who's coming in to give you uh, to try and take power from you or become your favorite person even is is giving you a sense of validation I think and yeah I just I loved that and it it seemed like a numbness to end on which I thought was really really strong yeah and it, and it comes back to the point as well that she just wants to be loved and in that moment I feel like she realizes she's just stuck in this in a rut that she's never going to escape from it, it's such a it's such a great um callback to the title I not that I was the favorite. I have two uh, brothers, but I remember this feeling. <laughs> I hope they're not listening. Um, no, <laughs> I remember the feeling of when my when my dad died. My dad and I were extremely close. The, the one of the biggest things because I'm not married, 
um, and I don't have children, I, uh, one of the first things I thought, I was 33 at the time, and I went, oh my God, I'm, I'm nobody's favorite anymore. Like, when my, when both of my parents died, I thought, oh, um, no one's sort of gonna, you don't have that inherent thing that when you're a child, you need that. Or I feel like a lot of children maybe are, are raised to feel that way. And then it's a real moment of, of passing through from childhood to adulthood. And you see that all through the, all through the film, right? Like her, her rabbits and then, you know, choosing people to idolize her. And then, you know, it's this, it's this beautiful, fluid, cyclical thing. And for her, it never ended. Most people can process it and move through it. Like I definitely moved through that. Um, and I thought that theme was just so, again, so universal and so in depth, like it was so something that, that I think most people have at some point in their life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Lindsay, do you have a final positive point that you'd like to make about this? Wonderful. God, I think, I think I've been talking about them the whole time. It's the <laughs> actors, it's the actors. Yeah. They, it's just those three women that those, that choice was so surprising. I love them all. If you had, if you, again, is, if you had told me we're putting these three people in a film, I would have gone, oh, yeah, okay. That, and I had to just trust somebody and they were magical. So Absolutely. does anyone have any other notes or anything? I've got a few wee things. So what, one of mine is when Lady Sarah gets knocked off her horse after being poisoned mm -hmm. and wakes up in basically the brothel. My nitpick with that bit is, I thought there could have been like some. I thought they were going to go for some sort of redemption arc where she was going to get this chance, and we were going to get this chance to witness how the other half lived. She got out of that situation too easily. That's way too satis satisfying, Gary. You would have been satisfied, and he's not interested in making you feel satisfied. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> um, just some other quick things that I read. Um, Olivia Coleman gained two and a half stone to play Queen Anne and the real life Queen Anne's coffin was so big that 14 carpenters were required to carry it. Wow, so, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, Maybe she just lived through a pandemic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> only, only she was just eating a lot of lobster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, drenched in butter. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, um, it never rained. It's a film set in the UK and it never rained. Yeah. I, how is that possible? It's like, not. Like, we've, had, we've had torrential rain for like the last 12 hours. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Amazing. Let's go around and see, has anyone's rating changed? Mine certainly has. <laughs> I definitely, I want to go and watch it again. Um, I said that for Pushing Hands as well. But I want to go and watch it again because now... I do appreciate the style of it. So I'm going to raise my rating to a 7.5 and that might change again <laughs> when I watch it, but who knows? Yeah, I'll, I'll stick with my 8 this time. 8 yeah. out of 10. Still, can you tell I'm madly in love with that movie? <laughs> I'm still in the honeymoon phase. 10. 10, 10. Absolutely. <laughs> love it. Okay, so um, now we will take a little break and we will be back in just a second. I'm ready for the Russian ambassador. Who did your makeup? We went for something dramatic. Do you like it? You look like a badger. Oh. 
Are you going to cry? Really? Well, what do you think you look like? Badger. Now we are going to go into the quickfire quiz round. So Gary and I have five questions each about the film. It's for um, fun. For fun. Yeah, absolutely for fun. I have the memory of a goldfish, so... <laughs> Okay, Gary, you can start this one off because I started last episode. Okay, so roughly, what is the official running time of the film? One hour and 58 minutes. How many rabbits does Anne have? In the teens, is it 14? Close, 17. Oh, that was my second guess. Damn, I should have got... <laughs> Always go with your first instinct, people. Yes. Mm-hmm. How many chapters does the film have? Oh my god. Get total guess, four? Eight. Oh my god, see? Goldfish. Uh, what is it that the members of Parliament throw at the naked man for fun? Fruit. Yep. What did Queen Anne want to race and then eat? I'll give you a clue. It's the title of one of his other films. Oh, lobster. <laughs> well done. Thanks, <laughs> cheater. <laughs> cheater. <laughs> we would have done well in school together, Gary. Yes. <laughs> is... Did the favourite win Yorgos Lanthimos his first Best Picture Academy Award? No. Correct. To the nearest hundred, how many nominations has the film received? (laughs) To the nearest hundred? Yes, yes. Oh, so, ooh, 114. It is 329. Oh my God. Yes, and it won... 184 awards. Okay, true or false, the favourite also gave Yorgos Lanthimos his first Best Director nomination at the Academy Awards. True. Yes. Um, Have you got another one? No, I I started. Oh, I think I've not asked. Oh, my last question is, what does Sarah want Queen Anne to do to do to the land taxes to help fund the war? Mason. Double them. Fabulous. Very well. As our listeners should probably know by now, we like to finish off with a fun fact of the day that isn't related to film, just because it's great to talk about other things in general. So, and we don't do it often enough. Every conversation (laughs) is film, film, film. (laughs) So, my fun fact of the day is Scotland has around 3,000 castles, and if you try to visit one per week, it would take you roughly 57 years. Good reason to come back to Scotland. Yeah, most of the castles are probably ruins of castles, like some brick that's left, but it's still landmarks, so we'll take that as a castle. Yeah, definitely. Um, My fun fact for today is, in 2008, a cornflake the shape of Illinois sold on eBay for $1,350. And... (laughs) (laughs) The buyer wanted it for, he was um, making a travelling museum and he really wanted this cornflake. Like, what if it snaps <laughs> in the post? Yeah. yeah. And just think how many films could be funded with that. I know, that's scary. That's always what I think of. I think of, oh my God, just give it to me. I just, there's, I need to go look for cornflakes now. All right, my fun fact. You want to know my fun fact? Yes. I, during uh, COVID... I did a bunch of things that that on the outside were for my niece, but were really just 
for me and things I wanted to do as a kid that I never got to do <laughs> because I move around so much. I'm never in one place long enough to actually do them. So I raised um, tadpoles and uh, caterpillars into butterflies. And so I did quite a bit of reading about gutter- butterflies. And did you know that caterpillars, once they pupate into a chrysalis, turn into goo before they turn into a butterfly? That is crazy. I didn't know that. They liquefy and then they come out, they get basically put back together again and they come out as a butterfly. Oh my God. I mean, the day, the day that I get complacent about that, just shoot me. <laughs> hey, here's another bonus fun fact. I'm full of useless crap that nobody cares about. But uh, when you sleep, your brain um, gets rid of waste. It's a nice way of saying your brain poops at night when you sleep. That's why you get crazy when you when you don't sleep. It's because literally a buildup of toxins and waste in your brain. I probably need some sleep soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. cool. um, so our last little segment is sharing a short film that we've watched, um, that we love, and we'd like our viewers to go and watch. So I have watched a short film just recently, actually, called Red Hill, directed by Laura Carreira. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and it's about a man called Jim who's approaching retirement and he's he's completely isolated and he's taken this sort of group, um, taking part in a support group for people approaching retirement and they're asking, you know, what are you going to do? Like, what hobbies are you going to take up? And the last shot of that film was like, a knife in the heart for me it was it really hit me and I just thought um she's a fabulous director Billy Mack plays Jim and he is incredible as well and that is also on BBC iPlayer as part of Next Big Thing series two. So my short film uh, and it's a Scottish comedy called Crackpot that actually screened at my festival last year it's directed by Chris Cummings who does a lot with BBC Social mm-hmm. as well and it's just the best way I can explain it is it is pure Scottish humour with lots of twists and turns it can be found on YouTube as well um, I'm obsessed with short films and what they can do for filmmakers and it started when I got to uh, work at Sundance in 19 <laughs> something long time ago but the one that I really want to recommend stars Olivia Coleman and it's called The Carmen Line, K-A-R-M-A-N, The Carmen Line. And it was uh, directed by uh, Oscar Sharp and the screenplays by Don King. And it won um, a BAFTA award for best short film or nominated and it won a bunch of awards. It was very expensive to make. You can see why it, it talk about a knife to the heart. It is my favorite film of all time, just happens to be a, a short film. Yeah, I'd love to uh, watch your list of films, Lindsay. Definitely. I have it, I'll send you the whole list. Yes. <laughs> so good. Including one that I saw at your festival, Gary, um, oh. by Pete Pete Tonkies. I think it's uh, First Bite or Once Bitten? Yeah, Once Bitten. Once Bitten. Oh, that, that was one of those that, ones that I'll never, ever, ever forget. It, and it's shot in one room and just like you said, the cinematography is just amazing. The acting's amazing. The, oh, everything about it, just delish. Yeah, I was actually thinking about getting Pete on the show at some point. I was going to maybe yeah. reach out to him because he was so yeah. nice as well. Oh, he's a lovely guy. I remember going up to him after just a little slightly fangirling, going, ha, 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 
You're brilliant. I love that. Try not to sound like an absolute chipmunk when I go into those very high <laughs> registers. I get very excited. I love it. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for joining us. Um, it's been amazing to hear your insight on the favourite. And there's definitely been so much that I've taken away from this as well with all the advice you've given too. Um, why don't you let our listeners know where they can find out more about um, the projects that you have worked on? Uh, thank you, guys. It's just been an absolute uh, pleasure and always so fun to chat about stuff that we love and can't yeah. help but loving. Um, I'm just starting up the, the the social media thing and I can be found at Starling Film House. I want Starling Film House to be a place where everyone feels um, they can come home to and get the kind of support and advice and mentorship that they need as emerging filmmakers. So um, yeah, Starling Film House on Instagram and Facebook and uh, online. Sounds great. Amazing. Thank you. So I've been Ashley Sutherland. And I've been Gary Hewitt. You've been listening to Choose Film, a real retrospective. And we are very excited to see what is up next for us. For anyone who wants to get in touch with their views on the film or anything else about the podcast, you can email us at choosefilmpodcast at hotmail.com. Meanwhile, you can find me at QG Pro and Ashley at at Ash Sutherland Four on Twitter and at Ashley Sutherland on Instagram. And we don't really know who our next guest is or what the film is yet. So, I know, but it will still be in keeping with the first features theme. So, if you have anyone here on the podcast, let us know. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Goodbye.